I'd like us to open our Bibles this morning. We're going to be in the New Testament book of John as we're continuing in a sermon series. Our main service sermon series is going to take us probably over a year, and our series is called It's All About Jesus. It's a sermon series that's taking us chronologically through the life of Christ from his birth all the way to his death on the cross and his resurrection. We're going to look at the life of Christ day by day, mixing through the gospel so that we can put the whole story together. And we've come today to John chapter 4. We started last week in the story of the woman at the well. And we're spending three weeks on this topic before we're going to take a pause in our main series for our Easter series, and then we will come back to look at the life of Christ after Easter. We're looking at John, when we, when we see the Apostle John in, in his writings, and actually the entire writings of all of the Bible, John tells us that all of this scripture is here for one reason, and he tells us this reason in John chapter 20, verse number 31. He says, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Everything that John writes... Everything that Matthew and Mark and Luke and Paul and Peter and Jude and James and every word of the Bible is written for one reason. It's so you might believe. That's what it's there for. Most of us know the story of the woman at the well. We, we know that Jesus met a woman and that she wasn't a believer and, and he talked to her at the well and she became a believer. And There's so much more to the story. As we learned last week, the details from history showed us this deep animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And when Jesus and the woman came together, it was like two different cultures that were coming together. And there was this clash between the Samaritans and the Jews. And Jesus and the woman recognized that the history between these cultures typically would not put the two of them at the same place at the same time. Being a Jew, you wouldn't have typically walked through Samaria. And, and a woman, you typically wouldn't have spoken to a Jew. But Jesus set out purposefully to cross cultural barriers and to reach this woman. And we, as the hands and feet of Jesus, we have to do the same, right? We have to be able to cross those barriers. We have to be able to, to recognize that everyone that we know, everyone with a heartbeat, everyone with a soul, is made in the image of God, and we need to reach them for Christ. Amen? Amen. Jesus had told the woman that he is living water, and he can give her living water, and she didn't get it at first. She says, well, how can you give me living water? You, you don't have a bucket. You don't have a rope. How are you going to get water out of this well? And she just didn't get it right away. So Jesus starts to go about reaching her in a different way. And this morning we're going to dive deeper into how Christ is going to, is going to reach into her life and show her exactly who he is. And it's a devastating realization that she has and that we have when Jesus uses this tactic on us. And he will use this tactic on us because he has to. It's when Jesus steps up to recognize our sin. Let's pick up our reading. We're in John chapter 4, verse number 16. 
Jesus and the woman had been sitting at the well, and they had been having this discussion. And then Jesus says in verse 16, Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, You're right, you don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. We're going to stop right there for a minute. There was a, a captain of a ship years back who was out on the sea, and he looked out into the dark night from his ship, and he saw some faint lights out there in the distance. And Immediately, he went to a signalman who has a big light as well, and he said, I want you to send a message to that light. Send a message to them telling them to alter their course 10 degrees south. So the guy starts flashing the light to, to get this message across, and, and a few minutes later, there's a message that comes back that says, alter your course 10 degrees north. And the captain, he gets angered, and, and he He's frustrated that his command's been ignored, and, and he tells his signalman, he says, tell him, alter your course, I am the captain. So Sigmund sits there, and he writes this out. Another message comes back a few minutes later that says, alter your course 10 degrees north, I am seaman third class Jones. Now the captain is really mad. And so he says, send out a third message. That's, and he says, I want you to, to tell them to alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. So the signalman sends out this message again with the, with the light. And the message comes back and it says, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. <laughs> there are... Times in our lives when we overlook the obvious simply so that we can hold on to our misguided ideas. It's so important to listen to the light of the world, to listen to, to Christ as He's so much bigger than we are. But sometimes we're just not listening. We want to hold on to our pride, right? We've learned this from the, the woman at the well. We learned that she came to draw water about noon on this day. Noon would have been a very untraditional time for a woman to come to the well and to draw water. Normally they would have come early in the morning or later in the evening because it wasn't so hot. And it's also very rare for a woman to come to the well and draw water by herself. Typically the women would come together. They would come in a group, kind of like, hey, I've got to go to the bathroom, come on. You know, it's that same kind of thing, right? So they would go to the well together in the morning so it wasn't so hot. Many scholars believe, though, that this woman had come to the well by herself because she's very excluded. She's not in the clique. She's not in the circle of ladies anymore. They don't have any acceptance for her. She, she's an outcast in her town. It's evident that, that she has been shunned by the other women, and Jesus knows exactly why. See, our Lord told her to go home and to get your husband and bring him back here to the well so that, so that I can talk to him also. She says, no, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, okay, you're right. You're living with the sixth guy. You're not even married to him. And Jesus knows this is the reason why she's an outcast. See, marriage was important then. It was trampled on then as well as it's trampled on now, but in society those days, 
If the women knew who you were and knew about your marriage woes and the fact that you were getting around the town, you'd really have a stigma to you. The Jewish leaders at the time had a very liberal stance on the amount of marriages you could have. They would say, you could have up to three marriages for a woman. This, this woman has already exceeded that amount. She's at five marriages so far, and it doesn't even seem like she cares about marrying the guy that she's living with anymore. She's almost given up on it, right? So this woman who Jesus is speaking with is somebody who has a very low moral and a very low sexual standard. Towns in this day weren't very large. If you were the woman in town who's had five marriages already, pretty much people around town know who you are, right? You are the furthest thing from pure you're somebody that the other women might want to keep an eye on because they want to protect their marriage. You're somebody who's being looked at now as a flirt, maybe a temptress, maybe, maybe a tease, maybe a homewrecker, maybe somebody who's, who's got even more undesirable adjectives that, that aren't even proper to utter from the pulpit. That's who she was. She is a sinner's sinner who is coming here to the well to talk to Jesus. Jesus didn't sit here at this well talking to a king. He didn't sit here at the well talking to somebody who was full of righteousness. He talked to somebody at the well who was an outcast from her own society due to her own sinful behavior. When Jesus tells her to go and get her husband, she says she doesn't have a husband. What she's really doing here is, is she's, she's deflecting the recognition of her sins. She says, oh, I don't have a husband. She almost talks as if she's single. Can you see that? She's like, oh, I don't have a husband. Well, it's kind of a loaded answer. Yeah, you don't have a husband because you've had five and the guy you're living with isn't your husband, right? So she tries to play it off. Like, oh, I don't have one. Let's face it, Jesus knows, right? He can see, he can see right, right through this. She's trying to hide her sin. See, Jesus sees our sin. What Jesus is after is for us to recognize our sin the same way that he does. He wants the woman to see her sin the same way that he sees it. He wants, he wants us, he wants her to see her sin and our sin as filth, as offensive. He wants us to see it as disgusting, as, as worldly, and as dirty. When Jesus brings people to Jesus, something happens before we can even start to grow in Christ. And this happens at our first contact with Jesus, and for some of us it has to happen again and again and again. Point number one in your notes this morning. If you're joining us for the first time, you'll see on the left-hand side of your bulletin there's some fill-in-the-blanks, and I'm going to give you up here on the screen the answers to those fill-in-the-blanks. Point number one in your notes this morning. When Jesus brings people to Jesus, he first addresses our sins. After Jesus explains to the woman that he offers living water, he kind of starts to make inroads with her. He starts to show her the good news of the, of the gospel and the gospel message. And, and part of that message is the message of God's grace. But see, Jesus knows that there is no need for grace if we don't recognize our own sin as sin. 
Jesus brings this woman's sin to the forefront of the conversation and he puts it open on the table so she can see it and so he can see it. It's there. It's laid out in front. It's not hiding. And see, Jesus didn't go for the easy sin. He didn't go for name-calling, white lies, jaywalking. That's not what he went for, right? He went for some of the most private, some of the most dark, some of the most embarrassing sin that a person can have. He went for sexual sin. There's no doubt that God only authorizes sexual relationships between one man and one woman for life. That's in his book. That's in his teaching. The woman knows this. Jesus knows this. And the woman is being shunned because of her promiscuity in her own community. And Jesus calls her out. The woman, she did the same thing that a lot of us do when Jesus calls us out. She tries to change the subject. She doesn't want to deal with it. He said, oh, you don't, you don't have a husband. You've got five. The guy you're living with is not your husband. And she says, wow, you must be a prophet. Kind of trying to change the subject, right? You see what happened? As comfortable as life with Christ is when we sweep sin under the rug and think that he won't see it, see, that's not the way it works. You know what we're left with? We're left with sin under the rug. It doesn't go anywhere. It's still under the rug. We still have to deal with it, right? It's still there. In order to make it possible for the woman to receive that living water that Jesus spoke of, it would be necessary for her to deal with the tragic nature of her sinful life. There's a poet named Philip Bailey, a 19th century poet. He once wrote this. He says, The first and worst of all fraud is to cheat oneself. All sin is easy after that. Think about that. It's the first and the worst of all fraud is to cheat oneself. All sin is easy after that. Someone once wrote, because of sin, man has taken the deity out of religion, the supernatural out of Christianity, the authority out of the Bible, morality out of literature, beauty out of art, ethics out of business, and fidelity out of marriage. Sin ruins everything. It ruins lives. It ruins our hearts. It ruins our minds. King David said this in Psalm 32. He says, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. What joy it is for those who record the, or those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. See, there's not a sin that Jesus cannot see. There's not a sin that he can't help us out of. The Bible is clear on sin. It's our world that muddies the waters. But let's be 100% honest. Jesus sees sin clearly, right? He sees it clearly. Things that this world says are okay, Jesus has said forever, not okay. Jesus didn't change his mind thousands of years ago. He's not going to change his mind now, and he's not going to change his mind in a thousand years from now. What Jesus wants is for you and I to see our sin the same way 
that he does. To recognize our sinful actions as actually being sinful actions. He's tired of us making excuses. He's, he's tired of us telling us ourselves that the world says it's okay and it must be okay. He's tired of us creating our own truth. Sin's not a fun subject to talk about. It's right up there with hell and tithing as a pastor. But it's a mandatory subject that I must preach about. I know people are here right now and they're saying, they're saying, well, Pastor, what about grace? And I know your mind's already skipping to grace. And, and you're absolutely right. God offers forgiveness. And, and God offers us grace. But we can't recognize His grace in its fullest power unless we recognize our sin in its most devastating consequences. If we continue to look at our sin in our life and tell ourselves that our sin is okay, then we don't need grace, right? If we don't see it as a sin... What good is grace? God offers it, but it's useless if we don't see it that way. The woman had a massive sexual sin, and Jesus called her out so that it could be dealt with because he can't offer grace and forgiveness to something that you don't see is sin. He can't offer forgiveness for something that, that you don't think you need forgiven for. If the woman didn't think she needed forgiven for this, grace is useless, right? You know the story of children? Maybe you've known kids. Okay, so I'm going to bring my own kids into the sermon today. You ever known kids that one kid hits the other and you say, hey, say you're sorry. Like, sorry, with that eye roll. They're saying sorry because you told them to. Are they really sorry? Not really sorry, right? They're not. See... They don't see anything wrong with what they did. So in this case, your grace as a parent, it's wasted. It means nothing, right? They're not really sorry. They don't see anything wrong with what they did. Jesus knows that when we come to him, we're going to have to put everything on the line and ask him to change us from the inside out. And after he deals with our sin and he shows us that there's grace and there's a way out of our sin... He's going to focus on another very important issue in our relationship with him. Come back with me into John. We're in chapter 4. We're in verse number 20. The woman asked Jesus, she changed the subject, okay? She says, oh, I see that you're a prophet. She says, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship?" Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship Him that way. For God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. There was a time <clears throat> when the Samaritans built their own temple about 500 years before Christ. They built their own temple. They worshiped many gods at that temple. So that's what she's talking about. She's saying, we worship here, you worship there. Um, what's the difference here? 
Christ is saying there's a time the temple is irrelevant. Your temple's right here. Point number two in your notes this morning. When Jesus brings others to Jesus, he addresses our worship. He's going to address our worship. There's this debate going on between the Jews and the Samaritans. Where is it that there's almost this idea that, oh, we're better than you are because we worship here or, or somebody worships there. Jesus says, no, Mm-mm. the time's actually here now that you worship in spirit and in truth. However, there's an assumptive point here when Jesus answers her that Jesus is making this point stating that you're actually going to worship. In telling her that you're going to worship in spirit and in truth, it's assumptive that you're going to worship, right? And so it's not a question of where we worship, but Christ is giving us this question of who we worship. He's going to deal with our sin, now he wants to deal with our worship. He wants to show us grace, and now he wants to bring our attention back to him. When the Assyrians took over Samaria, we talked about this last week, when they came into that northern territory and what ended up being that central territory about Jesus' time, what we saw is they came in and they brought many gods with them. And there were, um, there were people who lived in this area that would serve numerous different gods. So Jesus is so adamant about this point. See, when we come to Jesus, and when we fall in love with our Creator, there's this swelling that goes deep into our soul that that thrusts a man to to worship his Creator. And, And it demands us to spend our time devoted to and admiring and loving and praising our Savior. God's people were told not to worship other gods because God wants all of our attention. He knows that worship of other idols and and other gods, He knows this. I'll be blunt. It leads to an eternity in hell. Wow, hell's a hard topic to talk about from the pulpit, huh? We've got a field day of hard topics today. That's what God knows. He's giving us this warning. Our God wants us to live with Him and He's a very jealous God. And I think that we should be very happy and very joyous for the fact that our God is very jealous. He doesn't want us worshiping any other gods. He doesn't want us giving our attention to anything of any significance above Him. God actually speaks to the children of Israel at times as they're chasing other idols. He refers to them as a spouse that's chasing a prostitute. That's the position that he puts, he puts us in if, if we're chasing other idols. He says, wow, why are you doing this? And if you're a spouse, I want you to think about what would that jealousy, what would that anger be like if, if your spouse was out chasing prostitutes? It's the way God felt about his people in the book of Exodus, chapter 20 and verse number 2. God says this, he says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other gods but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any 
kind or any image of anything in the heavens or the earth or the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. See, worship, worship is our, it's part of our communication with God. It's our praise for Him. It's us speaking to Him. Jesus sees us, and Jesus sees all that we do. When He sees us giving our attention that's supposed to be His, when He sees us giving that attention to another idol, it hurts Him. What is it that takes our attention from God? Very cliche right now for me to list things like money, relationships, cars, status, wealth, prestige, maybe responsibility. This is where this sermon normally goes. And, and they're all absolutely true that these things do take our attention away from God. Many of us on our cell phones, most of the more current cell phone operating systems have this feature that will alert you once a week and it will tell you how much time you've spent on your cell phone. It'll tell you where you've spent that time. Has anyone seen this alert that pops up like once a week? And it will tell you how much time you've spent on your phone. And most people are surprised to see the first time they, they get this alert and they say, wow, I spent an average of three and a half hours a day on my phone. Like, wow. Three and a half hours a day on your phone, that's 21 hours a week, that's a part-time job. Wow, we look at it like that. That's a lot of time, right? And that's just counting the time on your phone. What, what if your computer gave you an alert that said how much time you spent on your computer, and then your television gave you an alert that says how much time you spent there? And, and, and what if now all three of your screens combine and all of your time on electronics was calculated? And then what if that was put up on the heavenly big screen and right next to it, God put a calculator of how much time in worship and prayer you've spent this week. <laughs> what if God sent that alert to us? See, when Jesus brings people to Jesus, He has to manage our worship. He has to and He wants to dominate our worship. He yearns to dwarf all other idols in our life. He wants to be number one. And would it be fair to say Jesus deserves to be number one in our life? Amen? Amen. It begs the question, what is Jesus jealous of in your life? What's he jealous of? What is it that shows up on that category opposite our prayer and worship time? What is it that shows up over here on this category of worldly? I, I'm guessing there's like 9, 10, 13, 15, 20 different entries and we've got prayer and worship over here. Where's our time? See, Jesus is really starting to dive deep today, right? And he's diving deep into this relationship with this woman at the well, and he's focused, he focused on her sin, which was uncomfortable. And he focused now on her worship, which is uncomfortable when we compare that time with where we're putting our other time. But he does it all for one reason. Because he's confirming exactly who he is. 
Come back with me into John. We're in chapter 4. We're in verse number 25. Then the woman said this. She says, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Watch this. Then Jesus said, I am the Messiah. Before we get to point number three, I want you to see this. In the timeline, it was about two weeks ago when Jesus was in front of a man named Nicodemus at night in Jerusalem around the time of the Passover. Nicodemus is a man who is a Pharisee. He is a religious leader. He's a guy who's been studying what we would call our Old Testament for his entire life. This here is the first time that Jesus comes out and actually says, I am the Messiah. Jesus is making his announcement to the world, not to a religious leader, not to somebody who is followed by the church, but to an absolute low sinner. He says, I am the Messiah. He's not going for the prestige of somebody high up in the church ladder. He's going straight to the heart of us. Point number three in your notes this morning, when Jesus brings others to Jesus, He confirms that He is Lord. See, Jesus has no authority in your life if He is not the Messiah. He has no authority in our life if He's not Lord. But just as He did for the woman of the well, if you're coming to Jesus, He will confirm for you that He is both Lord and Savior and that He is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. The woman of the well, even though she's coming from a different religious background, she knows that there is a God. She knows that there is a Messiah who is coming at that point. And she's been waiting for Him to come. She might not know all of the details of theological perspectives. She might not have all of the verses in the entire Old Testament memorized. She's not as cool as us because we have every single book memorized, right? She probably doesn't have all of that detail. But the one thing that she does know, the Messiah is coming. And when he gets here, he's going to answer all of these questions for us. She knows that the Messiah is the answer. And she just learned that Jesus is the Messiah. The answer is sitting right next to her. She's been waiting with anticipation and she's, she's ready for the Messiah. I honestly, I personally believe that every soul that has ever been born on earth is waiting to recognize its Savior, is waiting to meet its Creator. In a world that we live in that tells us that anything can be your Savior, Savior, we find in that world hearts that are depressed. In a world that says that anything, anything that gets in our way, anything that puts Christ in our way is absolutely wrong. The world that separates us from Jesus, we find hearts that are living in sadness. We find hearts that are hardened. See, there's glory and there's grace and there's healing that comes with knowing Jesus Christ. Amen? The Apostle Paul wrote this to the church in Philippi. He wrote this, Philippians 2, in verse number 9, he wrote, Therefore God elevated him to the place of the highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
See, when people bring people to Jesus, we need to be following the example of when Jesus brought people to Jesus. That's why we're studying Jesus, so we can get to know Him, and we can get to know exactly how He operates and how He works with other people. But Jesus leaves no doubt in the mind of people who He touches. If He's touched your life, He's left no doubt in your mind who He is, that Jesus is God Almighty, that He is the Creator of all things, that He is the beginning and the end, that He is the Alpha and the Omega, that He is the bread of life and the chief cornerstone and the good shepherd and our great high priest, and that Jesus is the King of kings and the, and the Lamb of God and the wonderful counselor and the mighty God and the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. Amen. Jesus is indeed the answer that our souls have been looking for. Finally, when Jesus brings people to Jesus, his followers rejoice. And when you and I see people come to Christ, I hope that we rejoice. Just the same way that the angels do. But here's the one thing. We see this from his disciples. When, he brings, when Jesus brings people to Jesus, they rejoice, but they don't ask questions. Watch this. Come back with me into John chapter 4. We're in verse number 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to the woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? And why are you talking to her? you got to remember who she is. Remember? She's not somebody who's looked at as high class in this town. She's somebody who's been shunned in this town. Why is Jesus talking to her? You know what? I'm not going to ask any questions. Because Jesus is doing what Jesus does. He's showing grace and forgiveness and mercy. Amen? Point number four in your notes this morning. When Jesus brings others to Jesus, He helps them grow closer to Him and further from this world. The disciples, they would have had every right to ask Jesus. Like, um, hey, um, I just want to let you know, like, we were in town getting some food, and we heard about this woman that lives here, and she is like, oh, oh, you're talking to her? Let me tell you about her. Uh-uh. This woman's out in the middle of the day, and they know that Jesus works in a different way than we do as humans. Jesus is talking to a sinner. He's making himself known. See, when Jesus makes himself known, he is beginning to, to, to grow a young follower into a mature follower. And that means that someone is about to experience a changed life. And for that, we should all rejoice. People, people love babies. Who loves babies in here? I know Chantel's not here, but if she was here, she'd be jumping up and down right now. Chantel loves babies. But people love babies. Babies are, are, are cute. There's a delight and an enjoyable experience when we watch but babies grow up into little men and, and women, and we watch them grow into adolescence and their teenage years and then into functioning adults. However, I think we all know that there are some characteristics of babies that are not very attractive. Like, babies are dependent and they're demanding. They 
They're unable to fend for themselves. They can't stay out of messes. They're irritated when they're dirty. They have no manners. They cry and they cry and they cry and they've got a little attention span and they've got no abilities and no skills. And they're cute, but they're babies. And so these are all aspects of babyhood. But see, the problem comes when we see adults that are acting with those same characteristics of babies. It's when we see adult Christians that are acting as baby Christians. There's, there's something tragic that has happened when, when a Christian has is, is, is been in the faith for 20 years but is still young in the faith. Sometimes we see Christians who have no interest in growing. They just want to be entertained. They just want to hang out with the Christian folks at church. They just, it's grown men and women who are comfortable as Christians just sitting down in diapers and letting other people take care of them. Some baby Christians simply want to drink milk. They just want to continue to drink spiritual milk and they cry and they fuss and, and some adult Christians refuse to, to grow in their faith because they're still drinking Jesus' milk. They're still just coming for the songs. They're still just coming for the attention. They're coming for the group. And you see, in order for Christians to handle solid food, we have to have this maturing digestive system. We need teeth, right? We need to have an appetite that grows for the deeper relationship with Jesus. We need this period of time that grows us from childhood in maturing and coming closer to Christ. As a baby Christian grows into a teenage Christian and into an adult Christian, they recognize the things that they were holding on to in their childhood. Growing Christians will leave their toys and their lifestyles on the ground to turn around and walk to Jesus. We leave that, and we walk and follow Jesus. Somebody once said, if you're following a lifestyle, that's different than following a Christ style. Because our lifestyles are man-made. When people come to Jesus, Jesus changes lives. Everyone here who has a deep conviction in their life for Jesus Christ has at least come to face their, their sin at least once. And sometimes we have to face it again. And sometimes we have to face it again, but we have to recognize it as sin, right? We have to so that Christ, who can help us through these situations so that He can help, because we can't ask for help if we don't recognize we need it, right? Maybe you're at a point where... Maybe you're at a point where you're ready to grow from those baby steps... And you're ready for more mature food. You're ready to take that next step of spiritual growth. And you're here this morning and you're realizing that your world is getting much more of your attention than your God does. Or maybe you're here this morning and Jesus is confirming for you that He is Lord. That He is your Savior. And that there is comfort in His arms. And away from His arms there is sorrow and sadness, and separation, and pain. 
And maybe you're here this morning and you're ready to give up that pain. And you're ready to come to the arms of your Creator.